Good morning, everyone. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. I am very, very, very excited to interview Noel Nash, the owner of the Chronicle newspaper in Cresswell, Oregon. And I'm going to begin this morning with, with his bio. I'm very impressed with his bio. We have in our community what I would consider a gem. Uh, someone who understands media like we've probably never had locally before. And his bio is going to establish his expertise, but I believe once you hear it, you will be as excited as I feel once I read it. So Noel, Noel Nash, excuse me. After 25 years in the newspaper business as a reporter, page designer, designer and senior editor, Noel joined ESPN to help create the staff and analysis team in 2006. In 2015, he became Vice President of the Stats and Information Group, a staff of more than 200 part-time and full-time employees around the globe who generated unique and differentiating content across all media platforms, including TV, studio and event production, digital, mobile, tablet, websites, fantasy gaming, audio, and print. Their primary areas of focus with SIG included the bottom line, content research, stats and analysis, supplying all clock, score, and statistical content to every ESPN platform, and sports analytics, which created industry-changing metrics such as total quarterback rating and the football power index. SIG also collaborated with a variety of partners across the company, including product development, technology, ad sales and marketing, international businesses, and many more. No left ESPN in 2017 and purchased the Chronicle in February 2019. He and his wife, Didi, have a son, Benjamin, 29, who lives in Connecticut, and a daughter, Melissa, who lives in Salem, Oregon. No Nash, good morning. Thank you for uh, making yourself available this cool, overcast Saturday morning in, in, here in Oregon. How are you doing this morning? It's great. Uh, there's no place else I'd rather be right now than in no that cool, else. overcast Oregon. Very good. Well, your bio is impressive. And not just because of an educational background, but because of achievement, exposure, the risk-taking, the development phase, um, the broad vision for media and the capabilities of media in more than one format. And here you are in Cresswell, Oregon, from the East Coast, bringing that wealth and depth of experience, broad expertise, and we have you here now. Why are you here in Cresswell, Oregon, and why the Chronicle? That's a great question, Mark. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's not an easy answer necessarily, um, but I, I'll try to distill it uh, down to, to this, essentially, is I believe in hyper-local journalism. And I have seen during the course of my career and then sort of the acceleration of the effect of newspapers covering less and less uh, of a community um, as they've been taken over clearly by more of a corporate mindset, right? And so they're looking to find efficiencies in how they run their business. And that is a business model that mm -hmm. clearly must work for them. 
That business model, though, leaves an awful lot of people, you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, small businesses, left out of the loop entirely. And I think what it has really created is a huge opportunity for people that believe in hyper-local coverage and covering communities to come in there and do that job now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really see it as, as a great opportunity. And I started my career at an afternoon newspaper, the small paper in Miami, right? The, the Miami Herald was the big paper. Mm -hmm. This was the afternoon paper. And people could come work out and watch my new TV, whereas before they couldn't do that. So the afternoon newspaper died. But in many communities, that afternoon newspaper was the last link uh, to local neighborhoods covering the things that they cared about. And so really what I saw when I left ESPN was the opportunity to get engaged with hyper-local journalism again, covering people in the news and things that are important to people that were, that were being overlooked um, because it didn't make financial sense for the big corporate entity to cover them. So again, I'm not criticizing that approach. It's just not the approach that I have taken. Um, I believe there's an opportunity here to tell stories, compelling stories about people's lives and what's meaningful to them. I think those things uplift and edify a community. Um, I think there's an opportunity to provide utilitarian information to people that makes their lives better and safer. Um, and so there's, there's so many opportunities to serve and that's what really excited me. Um, you know, uh, I was a part of the Disney ESPN, uh, uh, corporate empire, so to speak. And there was a lot of really, uh, meaningful and fulfilling work done, uh, in terms of day-to-day -day business, but also in terms of those large corporations commitment to helping others. And it was always great to feel like you were a part of a big, a big effort, a big donation campaign through Disney, help after a, an emergency or a crisis of some kind. Owning a small paper in a community like this allows us to really put our hands directly on the people that need the help yeah. and get engaged in a way that is so much more meaningful than, than maybe making a financial donation, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's all of those factors, right? The community, the, the local newspaper is a part of the institution as much as education is or local government is or the faith community is. And so um, I take all of that really seriously and uh, that is what motivated me that when I was out of, out of work after ESPN and kind of thinking about what the next phase of my life was going to be, um, it became clearer and clearer when I realized that there were these small community newspapers out in the world uh, that were serving this role or had the potential to serve this role if utilized in that way, right? And so that's, that was the big motivation. I had to jump through a lot of hoops to find out actually where this paper was when I started to inquire about it. And when it turned out that it was in this little town of Cresswell, it kind of felt like the paper had reached out and found my wife and I. We were in Connecticut. Our daughter had moved out to Salem uh, a few years ago. And it sort of all made sense to us that this is where we should be and this is what we could be doing. So will you cut out a little bit? What was the name of that Miami newspaper that you worked at? Sure. I started my career at the Miami News, Miami. which is Miami's oldest newspaper. It had become the afternoon paper. Yeah. Um, 
And what a thrill. I, uh, you know, read the paper. I delivered the paper, you know, as a kid. Uh, I called in scores from my high school sporting events to the paper. And, uh, uh, and halfway through my freshman year of college, I was working at the paper, working with all the people, the writers that I had seen in the paper. And it was just amazing. And so you're from the Miami area then? Yeah, born and raised in Miami. I literally grew up two doors down from the house my mom grew up in her whole life, right? All of my elementary school teachers had my mom as a student, had my three older brothers as students. Uh, so very much old school Miami, not necessarily what you think of today with Miami and South Beach. And uh, it was a very different time in the, the, you know, the early 70s and the 80s in Miami. So in this... Um Before we come back to Cresswell, before we come back to the Chronicle, I'm assuming you went, where did you go to college at? Did you go to college? Yeah, I, uh, I did spend some time in college. I went to uh, the community college in Miami, Miami-Dade Community College. At that time, it had two campuses, one in the North Campus, they called it, and one on the South Campus. The, the, the sort of the newer area of Miami was South, and uh, and the northern area of Miami was, was sort of the older community. And um, as it turned out, who knew, it had one of the best journalism programs in the, in the entire country. Um, Jose Cavedo uh, was a journalism professor, a very uh, dynamic, uh, visionary young uh, professor, journalism professor, uh, huge in the industry, trained a lot of great journalists and was uh, uh, incredibly creative that was the early wave of modular newspaper design and he was on the cutting edge of that and so the falcon times at miami Dade north was actually one of the most awarded papers in the country and nobody really knew that and i i didn't know that and i was stunned that i had this interest in journalism and it somehow stumbled into a junior college program that was one of the best in the countries uh the pulitzer version of college is called the pacemaker and the Falcon Times had over 20 pacemakers ringing the little newsroom on campus. And it was, it was pretty amazing. And um, as it turned out, the sports editor of the Miami News happened to rent a house a few blocks down from my house. And so while going to college, I took him a bunch of my articles and, and, and asked him to critique them for me. And uh, when I went back to get the papers from them, he had a lot of good critiques on it uh, where I can get better. And at the same time, he offered me a job. And so I literally went to work full time and ended up leaving school with the idea that I was young enough that, of course, I would always go back at some point and get my degree. Um, and the professionals I was working with at the paper encouraged that, right? They're like, hey, you know, the whole point is to get a job when you go to college and you've already got it. So, you know, you're learning in the real world about everything. And so um, I, I, in fact, have never gone back uh, to get, get a formal degree. Um, but over the course of my 30-some year career, I ended up as a vice president at ESPN and, and working at the Dallas Morning News overseeing the Dallas Cowboys coverage, which there's probably no larger responsibility at the Dallas Morning News than being on top of the Cowboys coverage. And at that time, Jerry was trying to, the owner of the Cowboys, Jerry Jones, was trying to build the billion-dollar stadium. And so, you know, one of the things that people think about, wow, you, you worked in sports journalism, how great, you must have gone to all those Cowboys games, what a thrill. Well, that was the tiniest piece of the job, right? The, the two to three hours of the game was, was, was the smallest part. It's, 
it's covering the news, right? Players make news. There's court issues. There's financial uh, contract issues. There's legal issues all the time. There's working with the city to gain access and permits to build a stadium, high finance. So there's a lot that goes into covering the business of sports. And I was in sports journalism, but I literally touched every other part of the newspaper in covering sports, right? It's, it's well beyond the games. Well, I think it's exciting to hear that you connected very early on with your passion and it's your passion that led you and guided you and directed you. And it's that um, helped open doors for you because you followed it. You put your hand to the plow, so to speak. You risked writing, asking someone to uh, critique it. And they saw the, the value of this call on your life, so to speak. And there it was, there it was before you. This is just an amazing, you're just a, a, what an asset to our community to have someone with your experience, to have them here locally, because media is changing so rapidly and it is changing in such a pace that it takes someone with legitimate skill in those areas to be able to help lead it and guide it and direct it. And I really, after reading your bio and hearing you speak now, just this full scope of development that you have that will, as I, you know, we tried to interview yesterday for those that will see this and we had some audio issues, so we, we, we had to stop. But when I first came back from Texas and people were talking about a local newspaper, people were mentioning the Chronicle. And it was already on the hearts of the community leaders for the quality of the the work, the quality of the stories, the uh, deliberate intention of the Chronicle to uh, tell local stories about local people, to be deliberately involved in each and every process to create, not create, but to create the platform of the news that is necessary. And, you know, we've watched in our community as the Register Guard sold from being a local newspaper, it's now a business-minded paper as, you said the business model, and I know a lot of people who no longer work there. It's not a, an indictment against them. They've done what they had to do, but it has definitely lost that concept of uh, we're, we're your paper. People know that it's no longer the community's paper. It's a corporation. It belongs to a corporation, and that's how it models itself. But then when you read the Chronicle, it's like you used to feel like when you read the Register Guard 20 years ago, it's part of you and you're part of it. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you, you're coming from the East Coast. How did you find out about the Chronicle? How did you find out it was for sale? What was some of that process for you? Sure. So I left ESPN um, around November of 2017. And my wife and I decided to, to just take a year, if that's what it took, but take some time to really think about what our next step was, right? We're both native Miamians, um, that we're nearing 60. Um, is this the time maybe to get back to Florida? Um, uh, maybe Texas, we lived in Dallas and there's lots of beautiful things about Texas too. Um, you know, we're making big picture decisions, thinking about our lives and where we want to invest our time and our effort. Our oldest son is still in Connecticut. Our daughter had moved to Oregon, as I'd mentioned. And so I really wasn't sure. I, I, I sort of knew I didn't want another corporate management job. Um, and 
boy, there's every opportunity in the world, right? Everybody's got, got their own dream to run their own business or something. And so we were looking at all kinds and considering all kinds of opportunities. Of course, I'm, I, I am a journalist and, and I'm really curious about things. And so I, I, I consume a lot of content and um, I started noticing more journalism. Uh, as I sort of drilled down, I started noticing opportunities in journalism beyond sort of a, a corporate role or a newsroom role. And, and, and uh, I started noticing that there were small papers for sale. Mm -hmm. And so I think, well, wouldn't that be nice if we could own a small paper and, and live somewhere where, you know, we could sort of live out this final chapter of our lives. And, you know, maybe if you own a paper, you own it for the rest of your life. You never have to retire, right? You can continue to contribute and make a difference in your, your community, whether you're doing a literal writing or laying out of the paper, you could still do this thing. And so that really interested us. And again, I just started to then purposefully seek out small newspapers that might be for sale and in our price range and all these other list of factors and 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 uh the blind sort of uh approach when a newspaper is put up for sale because it is an institution because it affects so many different aspects of a community they they, they have to put it up blindly and there's a lot of uh, non-disclosure agreements and other things you have to go through until that the name of the paper the location of the paper is actually revealed and <clears throat> when it was actually revealed that it was in this area called Cresswell, I was not familiar with the town of Cresswell. Um, and so I immediately Googled and, and started to do my research and seeing that it was, you know, 15, 20 minutes from Eugene, um, immediately, you know, uh, struck me. Um, there was a, about a five to six year period where I worked for the New York Times Company, which owned the Gainesville Sun in Gainesville, Florida. And, um, we loved living in Gainesville, Florida. I was a sports editor there during the, the heyday of the, the Steve Spurrier era when they won the national title at that time. And um, as a Miamian, of course, that broke my heart. But as a journalist, I had to set that aside and, and, and no doubt cover some of the greatest moments in Florida sports history, sadly. Um, you know, we did books, we did special sections. You know, they, they, it was a big deal. But, but we loved living in Gainesville. Um, a college community and the diversity that it brought, the diversity of thought, the diversity, you know, on every, every diversity factor that's out there. It was a place that was really stimulating, you know, you, you know what, what the, the heartbeat and rhythm of a university community is like. It's amazing. And to think that little press, and I, when I looked through the Crestwell product, I really didn't see much of that influence in that product. And then I saw there was a town called Springfield and a town called Cottage Grove. And I sort of looked at the coverage that they were getting. Uh, the paper down in Cottage Grove is, is owned by a company based in Illinois that has over 60 papers in eight states. So there was, there was no hyper-local mindset around covering community. And so everything sort of just became very clear to me that this was a great opportunity. You have 70,000 people in Springfield, you know, 5,000 in Cresswell, another 10 in Cottage Grove, and all of that is sitting on the verb, you know, right on the border of 150,000 in, in Eugene. And suddenly you've got about a quarter of a million people here in the Southern Willamette Valley, many of whom are being underserved by the largest newspaper chain in America, Gatehouse Gannett, right? 
um, and the rest of them just underserved. And it seemed to me like if, if we could come in there with a purpose and a vision and a mission to, to serve people and be a part of the community, that we would be successful. And, you know, again, I only bought the paper, uh, you know, really March 1st of, of 2019. And so it's hard to say that we have enough data and everything else to prove that, you know, all these ideas are right. Although I, I think we all felt like we were clearly turning the corner here, that we were seeing reaction. You mentioned the anecdotal feedback that you heard. Somebody mentioned the Chronicle. I mean, really, we've only dipped a toe in the water. It's been a year, right? We're still trying to establish culture and workflow and process within our newsroom and identify the right people, let alone, you know, actually implement the full vision. Yeah. So it felt like we were really turning a corner though and getting the kind of feedback that made us feel like we were on the right track mm -hmm. and then COVID happened. And mm -hmm. so, you know, then it became, are we going to survive? Are we going to be in business next week? And we were literally a week to week. And, and shortly after that, uh, a third party entity helped us set up a donation button on our website. And, and Mark, I can't tell you, um, it's, the money totaled about 3000 total, um, which, which helped us, um, not going to save our business with $3,000, right? But it helped us for sure. Mm -hmm. The cards and letters and notes that came with that were incredible. That's what sustained us. That's what boosted our morale. That's what kept us going. When you saw that somebody, you know, scribbled, a note on a $10 donation saying, I hope this helps you stay alive. We love you. Yeah. Uh, that that's sustaining. Well, that's, that's, um, I, you know, I shared that Erin had posted that on her page and I shared it to Mike. Every time I saw it, I kept sharing it to my personal Facebook page and my, my business Facebook page. And I think it's important for us to understand that uh, local media costs money. Yeah. And right. And if people want local media, local news, participation, involvement, someone to have interest in us, we must have a mutual interest in return and their uh, success so that we can have access to the information, the content in which you're providing. What is it, um, what's a membership cost annually to the Chronicle? Sure, we actually have, have just changed things recently on this because we did launch a brand new website on April 1st, which was really um, a bold, we talk about bold decisions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Corona sort of appeared in mid-March and we realized there were a lot of things that were happening with our little, around our little business. Mm -hmm. If the post office were to go out of business for some reason, um, how would we get our product and our news and our information to people who vitally need it? Um, if our printer had to shut down, mm -hmm. how would we print our newspaper and get that information to people who need it? And so we had to make a decision. Our, our website, as it was currently constructed, was not a great resource for people. It wasn't agile. We weren't able to really post in real time or update frequently. It wasn't serving our readers. And so I had spoken to a web design company right when I had bought the paper. And I realized that there were enough other things going on that I needed to sort of deprioritize the website. Let's focus on getting the print product where we need it and the business where we needed it. And so as we were sitting there in late March, I was thinking to myself, man, I, I could really use a new website right now. So I contacted 
this person, uh, Andy Rossback, and he's a designer for the New York Times company currently. Um, and the New York Times graphics are off the charts, and he's one of their graphics designers. And he had started this company, Mazama, in Oregon a few years ago that would create templates and websites for small newspapers. Because he's a guy from Oregon, and he loves and is committed to this idea of small newspapers. And so he created, with some other folks, uh, this company, Mazama. So I called him up and said, hey, um, you know, he, of course, was in New York. So he's in the middle of this. He's, he's seeing the pandemic and the issues even more clearly than any of us at that time. And um, he understood the value of what I was trying to do. And he said, look, uh, no charge for the first four months. Let's get you a new website up and going and all the tools that you need to make it happen. And within a week, within one week, literally seven days, we launched an entirely new website. And we've been driving all of our content, engaging with readers every day on there. And of course, there's a social media uh, part of that strategy, uh, everything. So we took the paywall down off our website, made all the content for free. Everything that we post on the website automatically gets posted on our Facebook side, site. And so we exploded online all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a really big risk and a key move, and it, it is something that, that truly has sustained us. It's also forced us to change our business model. So if you previously, if you bought a subscription to The Chronicle, you automatic access to The Chronicle website. It was a throw-in, frankly, because it doesn't have a ton of value version of exactly what was in the paper. So now we have a website that's living and breathing to news today. And so we are, and, and, it, and so not only does journalism cost, but 24 seven online journalism costs more than a weekly newspaper journalism. So we charge $6 a month for access to the website now, or $66 for the year. We also still offer the paper. The paper's $40 for an annual subscription, or $35 if you're over 62. So the combination of an annual subscription online and an annual subscription to the print product is still roughly 100 bucks total. That's a heck of a bargain, frankly. And so that's the new models that we have for generating revenue around subscriptions. We also get revenue, obviously, from display advertising, and we get revenue through the publication of legal notices in our paper. We are permitted by the post office uh, to print legal notices. You have to qualify and certify for that based on your number of subscribers and based on the, the amount of content in your paper that is editorial versus advertising. So we maintain a ratio roughly of about 40% editorial, 60 advertising. It moves, you know, it, it flips from one to the other. It's in that window um, from week to week, season to season, based on what's going on. And so those are the three main revenue streams that we have. So it's, it's circulation, you know, there's subscriptions, the uh, legal notices and display advertising. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, what was the condition of the Chronicle, the mood like, and what was your vision to re-energize it? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the big question, right? Um, 
and I'm, I'm 14 months into the, my first time as a business owner. And I'm, there's probably one question that I would have for every single day that I've been a business owner now, right? I've learned so much more just in a short time. I'm really anticipating the second year of ownership and I can't wait for year three, four or five. And I might really know what I'm doing. Um, so a lot of learning in this first year, I, what I knew for sure, what I know for sure, Mark, is that everything is based on relationships. Everything. My relationships in my personal life, my business relationships in the office, with clients outside of the office. Everything that I do is a matter of relationship building. Um, this relationship that we have right now. Um, do you trust me to put me on and, and publicize what I'm saying, right? All of these things are a matter of relationship building and trust. So I knew that the first thing I needed to do as owner of the Chronicle wasn't to come in here and make a great newspaper and make a big splash or do any of those kinds of things. What I needed to do when I bought this newspaper was to humbly come in here and get to know the people in this community, get to know the people in this newsroom, right? I'm not walking in here with any preconceived notions about it. Um, I can't look at the product as it had been produced before I got here and say, well, that represents the people who work here. I don't know that. Maybe it represented the previous owner who had the people behaving that way or performing that way. Maybe it was a reflection of how those people perform their jobs on their own. So I needed to come in here and figure all of that out. And without a doubt, my number one goal when I bought the paper in the last year has been to build relationships, to build trust, figure out um, who, who's going to join in, right? Um, you know, oversaw a very large group of people at ESPN and getting 200 people or so to understand and get on board with a mission and support that mission and understand the culture and articulate culture is not an easy thing to do. It's not flipping a light switch. It takes a long, long time. It takes a lot of conversation, a lot of follow-up, a lot of explaining, um, a lot of development. And so really that's what I came in here thinking about. I had ideas, I had a mission, a very clear idea of what I wanted this paper to do and be. Mm -hmm. But in terms of getting it there, all of it really started with one-on-one -on -one relationships and figuring it out. And we lost, I, I, there were four full-timers when I got here and only two of those people are still here. Um, I did not, I did not take action to remove either of those people. They, they, they left on their own voluntarily because they, I think they realized, obviously, that the culture that we were setting up here and the, the approach that we were taking didn't align with how they did their jobs right. or wanted to do their jobs. So, again, no, no judgment on that, but we have a very clear culture and mission and vision at our paper to super serve readers, to super serve our clients with hyper local content. Pretty simple in a lot of ways. So, silly question. What did you and your wife think, think when you stepped on the ground for the first time in Crestwell, Oregon? So I actually wrote about this uh, back around our, uh, our one-year anniversary. Um, it was a crazy move out here. We drove out here in six days from Connecticut on a very tight schedule. We had to be at the attorney's office in Eugene on February 28th to sign the paperwork. Right. And I had to assume control by March 1st first for all kinds of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Tax reasons, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So we were on a bit of a deadline and we were driving out here in our, our little car and with our 
cats and our and a dog and and we drove through a horrendous snowstorm in Nebraska, uh, terrifyingly, where we were almost stranded. And we made it through there, and we pulled in to Eugene on uh, the evening of the 26th. And uh, that is the night that the gigantic snowstorm hit the area last year. Mm-hmm. So we were idling on the side of the road as the snowstorm began to just pour down around us. And I started calling to see where we could spend the night because our apartment wouldn't be available till the next day. And of course, because of the snowstorm, there were no rooms available. Locals without power had all grabbed rooms already. And so there we were idling on the side of the road with the pets and the car. And here we were, we couldn't find anywhere to stay for the night. And the snow was getting thick and heavier and heavier. And a check engine light came on, on the car. And we lost all power uh, in the car. So the, the, the acceleration, so the car wouldn't go over five miles an hour. So that was our first evening in town. Uh, we were lucky enough to find some place, a hotel, whose power had gone out and they'd lost all their reservations. And they called us and said, hey, I guess we have rooms, so come. And we got in for the night. And, um, and uh, the next morning we got up and we had to take the car to somewhere to get it fixed. We had to rent a car and get the pets and stuff over to our new apartment and move in. It was so busy and such a mindset of, just keep going, just, we gotta do this, we gotta do this, that there was never that moment in our first couple of days to stand here and let out a big sigh and say, wow, here we are, right? It was just go, go, go. And um, we are staying in an apartment complex uh, uh, in Eugene that is right on the river. And we did get out a few, you know, a week or so later, a few days later and take a walk. And it was so gorgeous. And we said, you know, look, at, let's stop and catch our breath. And this, this is beautiful. We're here. We're making this happen. So we love it. We, we love the whole idea of being where we are. Now, um, what does, how does your wife, you know, moving to a new community is hard. Moving across the country is hard. How is she adjusting? Yeah. So you know, not surprisingly, I'm going to be very biased here, right? I think she's amazing. Um, I've moved around a lot in my newspaper career. Mm. And, um, you know, not because I've been looking for jobs. Um, I really haven't spent much of my life looking for work until I sort of made this big leap of what are we going to do? Um, I've had a lot of opportunities. And so we've moved around a lot. I've taken, I've taken some chances on those opportunities. So, you know, I, I told you I, I worked in Miami. And from there, I I went to Las Vegas as a young man and worked at a, a weekly uh, newspaper in Vegas that focused on sports gambling and entertainment and news in Las Vegas. Uh, then I worked at the Palm Beach Post in West Palm Beach in the uh, early 90s, which was an amazing experience. Um, the Palm Beach Post was owned by Cox, which today we all know Cox Cable is this huge entity. Back then, they didn't even have cable. They were just a, a newspaper. 
uh, business. They own the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Dayton Daily News, the Miami News, mm -hmm. and the Palm Beach Post. And when they closed the Miami News, quite a few of those people ended up at the Palm Beach Post. Mm -hmm. And so the Palm Beach Post, the Fort Lauderdale Sun-Sentinel, and the Miami Herald were in an amazing newspaper war in the 90s. And it was very heady times. So we were battling and covering and the Herald was trying to get up into, you know, Palm Beach and Palm Beach was getting down into Fort Lauderdale and it was a lot of fun. Um, and so I met Dee Dee in Miami. We met at the Miami Herald. She actually was an employee at the Miami News. So she came to Palm Beach with me and we got married in West Palm Beach. And from Palm Beach, we went to Jacksonville, Florida, the paper there. From there, we went to Gainesville, Florida, where I became the sports editor. Um, that was owned by the New York Times. And then about after about five or six years there, the New York Times company came and said, hey, we have a managing editor job for the paper that we own in Northwest Alabama, the Florence Times Daily, which covered Muscle Shoals, Alabama. It's right up in that little corner, um, right? The Tennessee River runs through the middle of it. Gorgeous area, really historic. Two hours to Memphis, two hours to Nashville. Really cool place, great music area. And so we, we went there and I was a managing editor at that paper, which was my first big job at a newspaper. I mean, sports editor was pretty important. Uh, oversaw, you know, a lot of news in Gainesville related to sports, obviously. Um, but, you know, running the entire newsroom sort of opened up the view more, right? Um, and then from there, after about two years, I got an opportunity to go work for the Pulitzer Company. They own the paper in, uh, in Provo, Utah. And so they hired me to be the assistant managing editor in charge of sports and basically to run all of their Olympics for them. Uh, the 2002 Olympics, Winter Olympics were in Salt Lake, and there were some events down in Provo and Orem. And of course, you had Brigham Young University and, and Provo, and a top 20 football program at that time, too. So, yeah, I, I went out there to figure out how to cover the Winter Olympics for that, for that paper. And of course, 9-11 happened while I was out there. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the Winter Olympics was the first international event to happen after the 9-11 attacks, right? And so that brought even greater significance. And again, I just want to make the point that people say, oh, you were a sports guy. You were in sports. Yeah. Yeah. We were covering all aspects of the Olympics, right? Security, crime, terrorism, you name it. It's not just about sports. And so uh, that was an amazing experience. And then from Utah, I got the chance then to go to the Dallas Morning News and oversee uh, the Cowboys coverage, I oversaw the Texas Rangers and Major League Baseball for them. Of course, they had A-Rod at that time on the roster. Um, uh, they, they had me oversee golf. And so you had the two golf tournaments in Dallas every year, back-to-back, -back, the Nelson and the Colonial, the Texas two-step, as they called it. Um, and so really big, important areas for, for really probably the best sports section in the country, right? Sports Day had its own brand. And then... Uh, after a couple of years, about three years in Dallas, I got the call uh, to ESPN where they wanted to create a startup within ESPN. They wanted, they had been, uh, they had acquired a third party that was generating a lot of the data for ESPN and ESPN wanted to hide, wanted to create its own business of, by, and for ESPN. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was one of the people hired to help create that thing. Um, and so my point is, my wife has been handling and organizing all of those moves across the country. Uh, many times I've gone ahead of her to get started on the job and she's had to 
pack up the kids and handle the sale of the house and then move everything with us. Um, so yeah, no, she's quite amazing. And so this was yet another one. And yeah, sure. We, we hope this is the last move. Uh, we have all expectations. This is the last move, but she has remarkably, uh, you know, I, I joke, uh, that, that, you know, you know, people who are a housewife, she has been running Noel Nash Inc for 30 years and that's a hard job. Yeah, that's that's quite the story. It's a, it's like a, a military lifestyle, yeah. going back and forth. I was in the army for several years, and I moved on the east coast and west coast and overseas a couple of times. And you just it's a it's a big job. You can't do it alone. That's you gotta right. have you gotta have your partner helping you on that for sure. That's right. Uh, who are some of the some of the more interesting people you've met along the way that you learn from, whether professional athletes or owners of sports franchises, tell us some, share some of that history with us. Um, so when I think about influences on me, uh, mentors and things of that nature, mm -hmm. I really don't go to any of the people that I've met as sources in my career. I'm not sure that I can point to a, a coach, an owner, or an athlete um, that I could point to to say they made an influence on me. Um, there are certainly people in those roles who I've met and I respect, and there are certainly people in those roles who have a public persona and who I know behind that and I don't have a lot of respect for, right? That's just the way life is. Mm -hmm. um, and my role has given me access to see a lot of people when they're not on public display and maybe see another side of their character, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then that informs you, that informs you in life, right? And we, all of us, when we see people outside of the, the public persona. Um, I would say, you know, three of my biggest influences have to be uh, my mentors and bosses and, and, and really at the most critical stages of my career. So Jose Cavedo, I mentioned earlier, um, was a gay man in Miami in the early 80s. And that was not an easy life to live, no doubt. And, um, you know, the AIDS epidemic was just starting in the early 80s. So it was a time for people in certain communities of, of tremendous fear, not unlike what many of us feel today with COVID. There's great uncertainty. Why is this happening? How do you get it? How do you avoid it? Who's it? Why is it affecting certain segments? There's a lot of unknown, unknown things. But Jose, uh, Jose was a tremendous influence on me in terms of challenging, you know, as a young man, I was just out of high school. And so I was very much still under the influence of all of the things that were factors in my life to that point. Mm -hmm. And, and Jose was somebody that really broadened my, my outlook on life and challenged me to think independently, challenged me to make sure that I was fair, um, that I didn't bring conscious or unconscious biases into uh, coverage of things or discussion of coverage approaches. Um, and, and boy, he, he more than anybody at a critical time fanned those flames that I thought I wanted to be a journalist, that now I knew I, I am a journalist. This was a calling, right? Um, Jose died in the late 80s, very sad. Um, and then my second biggest influence, when I got hired at the Miami News, there was this young Cuban kid, uh, Leo, Leo Suarez. Um, and Leo became the biggest influence in my life, mm -hmm. in every way. Um, 
He's my best man. I got married in his house. He's my best friend. He was my boss. Um, Leo was amazing. Leo rose to become the sports editor at the Miami News and was about to become the sports editor of the Miami Herald when he died from a massive heart attack at age 37, late 90s. Um, so it's hard for me to talk about Leo, but influenced everything in my life. And then lastly, when I got to ESPN, my boss was a guy named Edmundo Macedo. Um, he had been a, a sports editor at the uh, San Jose Mercury News, a long time sports journalist and senior editor, and he had been hired from my MSNBC, Microsoft's delving into cable news. And uh, ESPN hired him, and he hired me. And he literally is responsible for any success that I've had since the moment that he hired me. Um, through a lot of tough love, sometimes, he coached and developed and challenged and uh, really shaped me into the leader that I hope that I am today. What were some of the, you know, that's a lot of responsibility, you know, a lot of exposure, a lot of room for error. Yeah. What are some of the mistakes that you made that really helped you, that you had to really overcome that helped you in your development? You know, I, one of my favorite commercials from Michael Jordan's era was that commercial where he states all of his failures, right? All the sh thousands and thousands of baskets that he missed, um, all of the things that he didn't succeed necessarily at every single time. And here's the most accomplished player maybe ever, right? And so I, I, I think to myself sometimes when I get asked to speak at rotary events or other things like that, that I'm gonna do a speech about all the mistakes I've made <laughs> because there's so many of them, right? My bio looks so great. My career arc, man, it looks great. Oh, just one big great move after another. And the reality is my career arc was like this for 30 years. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. You know. Um, uh, one of the big ones uh, <laughs> that I like to point to is a learning lesson, and all of them were learning lessons, right? That's how we learn a lot of times. Uh, was our marketing department at ESPN came to us before the 2010 World Cup in South Africa? It said, uh, is it 2010, I think, or the 2008? I can't remember. I'm, I'm missing on the, on the year, so don't hold me to that. I think it was before the South Africa World Cup. And uh, they came to us and said, look, um, there's only one ranking out there in the whole world. FIFA, the, the governing body of soccer, puts out this monthly uh, ranking of teams around the world, uh, of the countries, and it's awful. It, it, it's, it uses outdated data. We don't even know how they come up with the list. It's, it's awful. What if we, before the World Cup, ESPN came up with its own rankings and we can promote that, we can use it to market and sell around the games. And it, if, and if, if, if it hasn't, we can use it editorially too, storytelling. So, and so Nate Silver, who's a very well-known uh, mathematician in, in, in the world, he 
was the guy that predicted Obama's victory in 08. So that must have been the 2010 World Cup. So he was coming off of his predictions of the 2008 elections based on all of his data analysis. And we reached out to him because we knew he was a sports fan. And we said, hey, how would you like to create the soccer power index? Create the ultimate ranking uh, of, of countries in soccer in advance of the World Cup. And so anyways, ultimately, he agreed to do it, and he needed us to acquire a ton of data for him. And so we reached out to third parties around the world who had some data, and we purchased data. We also purchased data that wasn't electronic, that needed to be inputted manually by people. And here we had this giant team at ESPN, and we were under this deadline. And this was a big initiative, and we pulled these people together. We said, here's what we need you to do. Bang, 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 under deadline. Here's the process. Ah, nah, 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 nah. And the thing got off with all the enthusiasm of a slug. We were missing deadlines. We were horribly behind pace. Uh, people were not being as productive as we anticipated they would be doing this around their regular shifts. And it was a disaster. And I went to some of the leaders among the, the workers and I said, what is going on here? And they're like, yeah. Nobody knows why they're doing this. Nobody knows why they should care. Uh, you just dump this on everybody. And so it was a big wake up call. You know, just because you're paying somebody to do something doesn't mean you're gonna get the result you want out of that, right? You need, people will buy into that which they think they are a part of creating. And so I needed to get those people together, tell them why we were doing this and ask them to figure out how can we do this effectively, most effectively? And then people bought in. Here's what we should do. Get rid of 15 people. Here's the eight people. And we should do it bang, bang, bang. And they came up with a solution immediately. Instead of me saying, hey, let's just throw all these bodies at this. And just, just tell them to go. We need to go. And so that was a big life lesson for me of making sure that even if I think I have the right idea, I need to stop and talk to the people doing the work, the people who are engaged with it, and make sure that they're truly a part of this activity and make it better. The ideas of many are always better than the ideas of one. And when you're put in charge of things, your instinct is, I think naturally, well, I'm in charge. They, they put me in charge for a reason. I'm the, I'm the head of it. And in fact, what, what they're really doing hopefully is they're assessing that you have the leadership skills to involve and share that power and bring everybody into the decision-making process mm -hmm. and that was the big takeaway for me so at this stage in your career at the chronicle what do you look for if someone comes to you and says uh, i think i'd be i have a degree in journalism i think i'd be really good work for the chronicle and working for you what do you look for in a prospective employee so I'm going to go back to ESPN to answer that question. I think in our, in our personal lives and in our business lives, we, we make us, oh, that's big city, that's small town, that's, that's suburban city, that's rural. As if, as if those things make us different. They don't. I've worked at great big companies in great big cities right next to people who came from little towns and rural towns. You don't have to be one or the other. 
right? You can bring your rural sensibility to wherever you live in the world, to whatever job you have. And so when I was at ESPN, I hired people from entry-level part-timers to senior directors and vice president level. So that's a very broad spectrum and everybody in between. And I would tell those people, I look for the same exact things in every single person I'm speaking to. Mm-hmm. And what I'm looking for is, I, first of all, I'm assuming at ESPN, if you got to the point where you're interviewing with us, you've got the skill sets. You've either got the education or the background or the work history to get to this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume that everybody else you're speaking to at ESPN is making sure that you have those skills necessary. What I'm interested in is you and your leadership competencies. Mm-hmm. Are you open-minded? Are you open to taking feedback? Are you courageous enough to give feedback? Are you uh, a critical thinker, a strategic thinker? Do you understand the, the value of diversity and inclusion? Um, you know, all of these, are you have an entrepreneurial spirit? These are all leadership competencies mm-hmm. that I want to see in people. When I'm interviewing a part-time entry-level candidate, I want to see if that person has the aptitude to grow in those areas. What did you do in college? Did you lead a team? Did you lead an organization? Did you volunteer in high school? Show me things that speak to the ability that you're gonna become a great leader. Or if I'm interviewing somebody for a senior position in management or senior management, I do wanna see documented history. Tell me, give me an anecdote. How'd you handle this? How did you do this, take your, this initiative or organize something? I wanna see the demonstrated behavior around all of that. So um, I'm getting a call, I'm sorry. Close that. Uh, so that's what I interview for. And so when somebody comes into my newsroom here now at the Chronicle, I'm looking, you know, now I, I have to do a little bit more of the probing of the actual skill sets that are necessary. But I'm still looking for the same things fundamentally. I want good people. I want people that understand the vision who are gonna buy in, but I'm not looking for someone to, to parrot me to not challenge me. Um, I do want them to challenge me. Um, I want them to be smart risk takers and to think critically. And when I say, here's a list of what we do around this, I want them to look at that list. I want them to know that they can execute that list, but I also want them to say, hey, why is this on the list? Mm -hmm. Or we can combine these two items into one item and save 10 minutes on the list, right? Think critically about it. And so that's what I'm looking for when people come in here. And, And I do that through the prism of what the needs are here. When I bought a business, some of the advice I got consistently was, don't hire people to do what you can do. Mm -hmm. And that's true to a certain extent, um, because I can do a lot of low-level things that probably isn't a good use of my time either. Mm -hmm. And so so to me, when I'm looking at hiring and building out this staff, I'm looking at what do I need? And, And I'll be honest, right now I need a bookkeeper. And right now I need a sales director. Those are the roles that I need most urgently to sustain and grow my business. I'm always on the lookout for people that can, you know, create content, good graphics, good photos, good stories. Um, I always need that. I can't afford to hire everybody that I want. And, you know, I'm working strategically with the university and professors there at the journalism school to see if they have uh, some talent and students who want an internship for us and do that sorts of thing. And, and we do have an intern coming on in, in June. Um, so, we're you know, slowly putting one foot in front of the other in terms of developing the staff and who's full-time, who's a correspondent, who's an intern, and, and building out all of that. And I need people 
Franklin and Springfield. I need people in Crestwell. I need someone in Pleasant Hill. I need somebody in Cottage Road. Right? It's early days on so much of this, Mark. And, and that's what makes me still really, really excited, right? We're seeing progress and really we're just getting started. What would you like to tell the community about your long-term vision? In a few years from now, what would you like them to know about how you want to continue to incorporate the Chronicle into their lives? So we stay true to our vision no matter what, right? When COVID happened, we had to pivot as a business on a few things. Our, our, the model that we created could not be executed the way that we had planned it because of COVID. There were no sporting events. The Olympic track trials got canceled, right? A lot of event-related coverage that people care about went away. And so we pivoted to covering healthcare and finance more because people are super interested in that content now. We have local experts in peace health and, um, and, 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 and local CPAs and, and accounting businesses and banks who can provide that kind of calming, trusted information to people hyper-locally. Okay. And so that's what we're going to continue to do in every aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And again, we've only dipped a toe in the water at this point because there's no easy way to do that. It takes a lot of manual labor. We got to find the right people. We got to build the relationships with sources at the city council, with the mayor's office, with the public safety office, with education school leaders, right? There's just so much to do. The arts community, the nonprofits community. And so when the people of Springfield specifically or anybody in the Southern Willamette Valley wonders sort of what's the future of the Chronicle, the future of the Chronicle is to get really, really good at covering you, your friends, your neighbors, your community. That's what we want to do. We're not, our goal is not to grow and, and join the AP wire service and start running a bunch of wire copy in the paper someday. Mm -hmm. um, our goal is to continue to spotlight and cover you and your community in a way that is uplifting and edifying and positive. Like thing in life, Mark, it's a spectrum. And you could be the New York Times out here or some wacky paper out here, or whatever the case might be. Um, I don't have a team of 15 reporters sitting around here digging in to the cops or the local government or, you know, deep dives into the, into the paperwork at the courthouse and investigating and looking to uncover things. That's not our role. We don't have the resources for that. And that's not our mission. Our mission is to shine a spotlight on the good people who live in a community and contribute that, to that community and, and make that community a better place to live. Look, we take our, our role as journalists seriously, right? There is an accountability role. We, we are in the Constitution for a reason. We are the fourth estate. And if somebody's embezzling money out of the city, if somebody is doing things harmful to children in a leadership role at school, we're going to, we hear about that, we're going to cover that because that's our role for the, for the citizens at large in the community, right? To, to, to make sure that they're safe and protected too. 
that's not our, our number one thing. I don't have the resources just to do that, right? And so with my limited resources, here's what we're going to focus on doing, right? Building and uplifting and edifying our community. There are so many great things to cover. There's so many great kids in the school system from pre-K to, to senior high school that are doing amazing things, overcoming odds in band, in theater, in sports, homemaking, in machine shop, doing that. There's teachers mentoring, overcoming all kinds of challenges in their personal lives to go to school every day and take care of our kids and set them up for success in life. And there's administrators overseeing all of that. Man, I, I could put out a paper doing nothing but education every day, right? And so when you start to look at how can you cover things that uplift and, and support and grow a community and, 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 and uh, keep the small businesses front and center, the, the engine that drives our entire economy in our country, um, to me, those are really easy sources. Look, 20 years from now, when I'm in my uh, 70s, uh, and, and, and yeah, we're, you know, we got 100,000 circulation, and we're from you know, Portland, uh, Roseburg. Yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll cover more, more hard news that way. But right now, our mission is very clear. Let's, let's super serve our community. Let's tell the great stories that are out there. Let's, let's tell the news. I mean, we've covered a lot of hard news too. This week's paper, you know, I, I wrote a lead story about the local post office and the threat of it going out of business and the impact that would have on a rural community. Um, uh, Aaron uh, Tierney, our executive editor, wrote about the fact that businesses are booming here. Our local nursery and, and do-it-yourself stores, construction stores, are, all have heavy, heavy traffic and booming. Um, and so there's a lot of news to cover without focusing necessarily on going out and finding negative things to cover. Um, we, use, we use a phrase at ESPN all the time about leadership, which is be solution oriented. Don't come and complain to me about your colleague. Come to me with a potential solution with the issue around your colleague or whatever it might be. You know, I, I had a boss at ESPN that would say, you know, everybody complains, you know, ESPN, why do we do this at ESPN? Because you do that. You are ESPN, right? We don't have to, we think as these big entities and we're not, it's us. We make these decisions. And so I think we take that responsibility on and we make the decision at the Chronicle to cover people's lives and to make a difference, positive difference in people's lives. We want to do solution oriented journalism. Hey, there's a, there's an eyesore in town. Yeah, we could take a bunch of pictures of the eyesore and write about the eyesore. Or we can talk to the city planner. We can talk to people on the city commission. We can talk to community leaders. We can talk to whoever and sort of say, hey, here's a strategy to deal with the five worst eyesores in town. Uh, here's what we can do to help affect that or improve that. And so, that, that's the idea. And I think that goes back to what we started this conversation with. It's about building relationships. And if we want a better community to live in, it's up to you and me, Mark, to have the kind of relationship that, that we can work together to make the community better. And that's the role of the paper. That's, that's my role as a citizen, as an individual. And I want to bring that mindset to the paper in our community. And, and, and look, I don't have the resources to go cover the things that are important necessarily to you that are your top priorities in Springfield today. So what do I do right now? 
I've got to come up with a strategy to amplify what you're doing. I got to make sure that the things that you're doing are reaching my audience and, and my sphere. And hopefully over time, I can grow my business and have resources that, that, that are truly another shoulder to the wheel with you on the ground, making a difference and covering communities that are underserved. Very good. And if someone wanted to get a hold of you or anyone on staff at the Chronicle, how can they do that? So again, we're a pretty small operation. We have one phone number. So it's 541-895-2197. And uh, that'll, that'll ring at every desk in the newsroom. Uh, there's a generic email that we use, info at chronicle1909.com, chronicle1909.com. That's our website address as well. Um, and it reflects the fact that we were founded in 1909. We sort of like the idea of having the modern web with a little bit of our 1909 history attached to it. Uh, so yeah, we just celebrated our 110th anniversary. Uh, yeah. well, that's exciting. Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, this morning we've had with us Noel Nash, the owner of the Chronicle and Crestwell. Very exciting interview, very revealing interview. Uh, thank you for taking a risk on us here locally and bringing your skill set, your expertise, your passion, your pursuit uh, to this area here in the Pacific Northwest and, and building a, pr a product that serves the people, that enhances the lives of the people locally and brings to, to, the, to the forefront the lives that we live here. And I just really... I've been really moved by your story, Noel, and the fact that you were willing to come here and uh, make a difference. It's very, very important for us. We love being here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Well, you have a good day, sir. And I'm sure we'll be uh, speaking again very soon on the work of the Chronicle. All right. Take care. Yes, sir. Bye-bye.